All right. Uh, our first sermon text today, our Old Testament reading, comes from the book of Jeremiah. Uh, I'll be reading from chapter 32. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. And Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord? Behold, I am giving this city into the hands of the king of Babylon, and he shall surely capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face and see him eye to eye. And he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall remain until I visit him, declares the Lord. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, By my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, Buy my field that is in Ananathoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew this was the voice of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Then I took this sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions in the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of Masiah. In the presence of Hamil, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard, I charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both the sealed deed of purchase and the open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel, that they may last a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be brought, bought in this land. After I have given the deed of purchase to Baruch the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, it is you who has made the heavens and earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O oh, great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, Great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. Our sermon text today is from uh, Luke 19. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because he, they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore... A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minus and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten mina more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. 
Then another came, another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and read what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who is the ten minus. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minus. I tell you to everyone who has, more will be given. But for the one who has not, even that which he has will be taken away. But as for those enemies of mine who did not want to reign over them, did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. All right, so last week we concluded our series on Lamentations. And so what I thought I would do is we prepare for uh, Palm Sunday and Easter. I thought I would switch gears a little bit and delve into the Gospels. So today we are looking at the parable of the ten minus. Now, I chose this particular passage for a reason. Uh, And it's because of this. Because in Luke's telling of uh, the Gospels, this story, this parable, occurs right before the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And so I thought it would make an appropriate lead up as their thoughts turn to the story of the Passion. Now, this is a weird parable uh, for several reasons. And as I read it, you may already have started uh, to ask some questions in your mind as we began reading this story. For example, you know, if this parable is about the kingdom of God and Jesus and so forth, why does it say in verse 14 that the citizens hated him? And also, the ending is a bit disturbing. Uh, people being slaughtered before the noblemen. Those are great questions. And it's probably why when you usually hear a sermon, uh, you usually hear, the sermon you usually hear is taken from Matthew's uh, parable of the talents as opposed to this account in Luke. Now, I think there's a great message here. And I think it's especially great because it's going to speak to us as we have just finished the series on Lamentation and as we begin to work toward the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Now, the first thing is we begin to look at this parable. It's important to understand this parable in its context. Understanding the context of this parable is actually going to be key. Now, that's different. A lot of times when we look at parables, we typically look at them as kind of self-contained morality plays. And that's what makes them very popular for sermons. You've got a 15-minute sermon with, you know, a couple of key bullet points. And so it's really easy to take a parable. Uh, However, uh, Luke put this particular parable in this particular place in the book. And he did it for a reason. And that's why the context matters. If we want to understand this parable, we have to understand the context. Now, how do I know Luke did this? Because Luke tells us he did this. Look at verse 11. As they heard these things, he, being Jesus, proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So what we learn from verse 11 here, right at the start, is this parable is placed in this text here precisely because of these things that the disciples had just heard. 
And what was going to happen next is they journeyed to Jerusalem and also to clear up a misunderstanding the disciples had about the immediacy of the kingdom of God. Now, already you can see that understanding this parable must mean more than the typical lesson we are usually we usually hear about this parable about how you know each of us have been given talents and resources and we should be good stewards of those talents and resources. Now, that's true, okay? And it's actually not a bad place to start. But because of this introduction Luke gives us, if we stop there, we really don't understand this parable. It's actually about much more than just a simple message of stewardship about using our resources wisely. So let's try to answer a few questions, first of all, to help us understand the context of this parable. For example, what are these things? What does this parable have to do with going to Jerusalem? And what does it have to do with the timing of the kingdom of God? So first, what are these things? So to answer that question, we're going to look at what's happened prior to the events of this parable. And here's what's happened. Jesus and his disciples have begun a journey that will ultimately end up in Jerusalem. The text tells us in Luke, they're going to Jerusalem. He keeps updating us and telling us they're on their way to Jerusalem. And Jesus had taken the disciples aside and he told them that what's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem is he's going to be turned over to the Romans. He's going to suffer, die and rise again from the dead. Now, pretty clear. And we as the reader know that that's pretty clear. And we know that that's what's going to happen. The disciples though, don't get any of this. And, you know, I think we're kind of hard on the disciples sometimes, but you know, they probably just assume like this is kind of crazy. You know, Jesus is just being his, you know, Jesus is kind of he says weird stuff. He's always cryptic. He's always like talking in the last shall be first and you know, (laughs) being born again, and, you know, really paradoxical, hard to understand stuff, you know? So this is probably one of them. Now, after that, Jesus and his disciples go to Jericho, and Jesus heals a blind beggar. In that story, the beggar hears a crowd and asks what the crowd is doing, and they say, we are going to see Jesus of Nazareth. And what happens next is the beggar cries out to Jesus and he calls him Jesus, the son of David. So the crowd says he's Jesus of Nazareth, but the beggar cries out Jesus, son of David. And that's important because son of David is a royal title. The beggar is emphasizing Jesus as king and specifically king of Israel. Now, when Jesus arrives in Jericho, he encounters the tax collector Zacchaeus. Okay, so that's the tax collector, the little song you learned in Sunday school. I don't know if people learn that song anymore. But anyway, after encountering Jesus, the wealthy Zacchaeus, who's a, you know, a tax collector and he's got all this money by like defrauding you know, average citizens, he gives away half this money to the poor and restores fourfold all the people he has stolen from. And after that, Jesus announces salvation has come to this house. Now, when we hear that and we read salvation has come to that house, we tend to think of this as like personal salvation. We tend to think of it as like moralistic terms that he's been saved. 
Egypt, you know. Uh, But that's not what that word would have meant to the people Jesus announced salvation to. They wouldn't have heard it the same way that we would have. Uh, When they heard the word salvation, that was actually a political term. The Greek word for savior is soter. And it had long been adopted by different kings in the Greco-Roman world. So, uh, you know, lots of uh, the people who took over after Alexander the Great's empire kind of dissolved. They took over different territories and they called themselves uh, Soter. It's like, so Ptolemy Soter, okay, the savior. And so when Jesus announced savior, after he caused an oppressive Roman tax collector, a collaborator to do a whole 180, What the people heard was not like, oh, wow, this guy's caught religion and he's been saved. What they've heard is the liberation from Rome is about to begin. So if we put all these together, we find that the context for this parable is Jesus being declared as the son of David by the blind beggar, converting a Roman collaborator, Zacchaeus, and announcing salvation. And he's leaving Jericho for Jerusalem, where we know that the events of the triumphal entry will take place in Palm Sunday, uh, where uh, Jesus will symbolically take on the mantle of kingship. Uh, Remember, he's going to ride on a donkey, just like King Solomon did. So the point here is that the context of this is that especially if you're one of Jesus' disciples, like the expectations, you know, of the disciples, all of Jesus' followers, just the hangers-on, the curious crowd, everybody right now, it's through the roof as it relates to kingship and Rome, okay? Now, uh, remember that Jesus has begun to the lead up to this passage by trying to reshape Uh, what the the disciples' expectations about what his kingship would look like. Jesus knew what they expected about his kingship. And so Jesus had to correct those ideas by pointing out his revolution was not going to happen the way they thought it would. The salvation and kingship that Jesus is bringing is of a whole different order. And that kingship is going to go through through his death and a cross rather than the military victories and political rules. That's what they were thinking in their mind. So when Jesus said that's not going to happen, that's when they couldn't understand it. It's just like they didn't have a frame of reference. This is not how it was expected to go at all. So Jesus is telling this parable against all of this background. And so that's why the context matters. If we do not read the parable in this context, then it's real easy to come away with the meaning as a meaning of this parable as, you know, we normally do. Something about the productive uses of resources that God has given us. Then maybe we could use that as a basis for some kind of book on Christian finance or Christian management or something like that. And the truth is that message is partly there, okay? But as we will see, The meaning of this parable is much richer and deeper than just a message about stewardship, okay? We got to blow that out of his mind because I know that's immediately what we all jump to. In fact, you probably, you know, don't, don't, you don't have to be embarrassed about this. When I read that, when you saw that this was the text, you were probably like, like, seriously, what's he going to do? Tell us like, hey, we've all been given gifts. Guess what? It's not just money, you know, maybe our time and stuff. And like, well, you like, you knew you already filled in. You knew what I was going to say, right? Right? But that, that's not really what's going on here. There, there's something more. Now, 
There's one other piece of context here that we need to know if we're going to understand the meaning of this parable, and it concerns location, okay? Jesus had just left what city? Jericho. Now, we know all about Jericho because we say Joshua a long time ago, uh, or just, I mean, we say Jericho not too long ago, and it's on the way to Jerusalem. Jericho is on the way to Jerusalem. Now, Jericho is significant for many reasons, but for our purposes, here is what you need to know about Jericho. There is a 20-mile road, a major road that runs from Jericho to Jerusalem. It's called the Jericho Road. Now, along the Jericho Road, about two miles from Jericho, is the winter palace of Herod the Great. That Herod the Great, the guy that was the bad guy in the Christmas story that ordered the killing of the babies at Bethlehem, right? That Herod the Great. Now, after Herod the Great, that palace was occupied by his son, whose name was Archelaus. And right now, as Jesus is and his disciples are walking by, it's occupied by another son of Herod named Herod Agrippa, or Herod, no, I'm sorry, Herod Antipas. So Herod Antipas is the one who is featured in uh, the Passion story. Uh, he's the one that uh, cut off John the Baptist's head. He's the one that Jesus is going to be brought in, uh, before on trial pretty soon. So, The point here is that Jericho and the road to Jericho is like totally dominated by this palace. Now, here's a fun fact. Jericho is actually the lowest city on the earth. Isn't that cool? It's like 850 feet below sea level, okay, because it's near the Dead Sea. Now, Jerusalem is actually, like, on a mountain. Now, it's not, like, much of a mountain, okay? You know, especially, like, if you're from, like, Utah or California or something. But it's, like, 2,500 feet above sea level. But, you know, you start off 1,800 feet, you go up 2,500 feet, you got it. It's an uphill road, okay? That would not be fun to hike in 20 miles, okay? Now, if you left Jericho then, the palace of Herod would have been right above you. Okay, so you're walking up and you see it, and then, you know, you walk past it and you turn around and it's there. So it's like dominating everything. Now, the other thing is this road went along like a sometimes kind of stream bed called a wadi, okay? And so it was actually like on the cliffs above this wadi. And so what you have to understand is like how prominent this palace would have been. And of course, like it's like really politically important because that's where like the king and the king's sons and everybody lives. Now, here's why that's important. Here's why you have to know that. Because it's real easy to read this parable as an allegory. Now, what do I mean by reading as an allegory? Okay, an allegory you have like a character. Every character in the story is a direct symbol for another. So, you know, I'm going to assume that you've read the Chronicles of Narnia or seen the movie at some time, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Remember, like, so Aslan is Jesus, right? You know, uh, it's just a, it, it's just, that's what Aslan is. He's a symbol for Jesus. Now, if we think of this story as an allegory, then what we do is we go ahead and we start reading, okay, the nobleman must be Jesus and his servants are like uh, all these 10 servants that are given the minus. They're kind of like 
the disciples or Jesus' followers. And that's how we usually read it. And then we get that lesson about how like we should use our talents and resources and you know good stewardship. However, if you read it like that, right? It's it's kind of unsatisfying once you start thinking about it, right? You know, like, first of all, we have to answer the question, like, who are these citizens that hated Jesus so much? And why does this story end with them being slaughtered before him? And, you know, and like, you know, he's not really like this. Yeah, he's not Aslan the Lion, you know, he's like kind of like this bad dude. I mean, he has that whole conversation there about, you know, uh, well, I'm a severe man and, you know, I take what I want and, you know, blah, blah. You know, he's not really a good guy. And. He slaughters all these people before him. Now, of course, people do attempt to answer those questions. They're like, oh, well, you know, the, the citizens that oppose him, they're like the Pharisees because they're like the bad guys of the New Testament. And, you know, judgment, slaughter before him. It's like hell or something like that. But here's what I think is the biggest problem with this. Um, it has to do with the reason that this parable was told in the first place. Remember, let's go back. Context matters. How does this interpretation have anything to do with any of these issues of kingship? How does it do with Jerusalem? How does it deal with the triumphal entry and this uh, misunderstanding that the kingdom of God would appear immediately? The answer is it doesn't. Because there's one more piece of context you have to know. You've got to know a lot of context here. But like I said, context is important. Here's what you need to know. I'll tell you another story. Okay, In 4 BC, Herod the Great died of chronic kidney disease that resulted in an abdominal infection and gangrene. It was like this extremely gruesome, awful, painful death. In fact, there's stories about how he kept trying to kill himself because it hurt so bad. But in any event, uh, that's just extra. That was for the kids. Okay. Yeah, I know. You like it. Um, in any event, Herod's son, whose name was Archelaus, had been ruling alongside his father at one time. For some time now. And so what he does after his father dies of the, you know, gangrene is he journeys to Rome to meet with Caesar Augustus to ask Caesar to confirm him as king. However, right before he leaves, uh, before Archelaus leaves, there is an insurrection in the temple. Okay, so, so there's a bunch of Jews rise up to, you know, finally get rid of these uh, Herod and his, his cronies. And so Archelaus sends in an army of 3,000 people, kills them all, or, and then cancels Passover. And this upset everyone. And so uh, the Jews were, were not happy about this. They're like, we don't really want this guy ruling us. So they send a delegation of 50 people to Caesar Augustus to argue against Archelaus, okay? So Archelaus is going to Rome to say, I need to be king. The Jews are sending 50 people to be like, this guy shouldn't be king, okay? Archelaus, is, he goes to Rome. He's not given all of what he asked for, uh, but he is given control of a large part of Israel, most of Judea and Jerusalem, and uh, Caesar promises to make him king if he does a good job. Now, when Archelaus gets back and he takes control, what do you think probably happened to those 50 people who opposed it? Yeah, I don't think it went well for him. We actually don't, sadly, we do not have a source that tells us what happens, okay? We have sources, yeah, but that's probably right. I think we can read between the lines. It did not go well for them. Yeah, now, does this story I just told about Archelaus 
sound familiar. The son of a king traveling to a country to receive a kingdom, opposed by a group of citizens that probably end up dead once he is given the kingdom, who has a palace in Jericho, where Jesus happens to be right now. So for a thousand resurrection church points, what parable does this sound like? Anybody? Bueller? Anybody? Yeah, yeah. this one. All right. That's what you have to understand. Um, Now, if we know this now, it seems that we can no longer view this parable as an allegory for Jesus, since we now understand that the nobleman is symbolic for pretty much a like universally hated and reviled dude. In fact, Archelaus doesn't actually end up ruling very long. I think he rules for like 10 years. And finally, like Caesar gets fed up with him and uh, his violent, you know, his violent ways. And he exiles Archelaus to like France, you know, because it's, yeah, yeah. So Ryan could go visit Archelaus's uh, exile place, yeah. So if the central character of this story is a bad guy, then how do we read this parable? Does that mean now that the third servant then is the good guy and that this parable is about how we should not invest our talents and resources and hold on to them uh, because people in charge are corrupt and oppressive tyrants? And what does any of that have to do with the faithfulness and the kingdom of God coming immediately? And the answer is that this parable is not an allegory, okay? It's an analogy, okay? So an analogy, by contrast to an allegory, clarifies a difficult concept by using a clearer, more familiar one. So I said to myself, I need an example of an analogy that I can give to you. And then I thought about it while I was at the wooden nickel and watching my kids eat their shamrock burgers, right? So we just celebrated St. Patrick's Day. And according to legend, St. Patrick illustrated the very difficult concept of the Trinity using the familiar shamrock as an analogy. Now, of course, by doing so, he committed the heresy of partialism, but that's a sermon for another day. But the important thing here is that we need to read this a parable, and particularly this story, particularly as the story relates to the situation with Archelaus, as an analogy and not an allegory. So, what we have learned so far, kids, English class is helpful. All right. So, If we read this parable as an analogy with the situation involving Archelaus, uh, and this is a story that like everyone knew, then how do we read this parable and what does that mean for, for the meaning? Think about this. Archelaus is taking this long journey to ask the kingdom from Caesar. In addition... Archelaus is strongly opposed by another group of people who want to make the, the case before Caesar that Archelaus should not be given the kingdom. And, you know, Judea was a client state of Rome. Uh, Rome had actually made Archelaus's father king. So just being born the eldest son of the previous king didn't mean uh, anything to Rome. Rome could do what it wanted to do. In fact, it wouldn't be long before Rome just decided that they weren't going to have kings in, uh, Israel, in Judea and were going to just rule it directly. So what that means is that when Archelaus leaves to go to Rome, there's no guarantee that he is going to come back as king. There is uncertainty. 
And it's this element of uncertainty, I think, that is the key to understanding this parable. Because there's an element of uncertainty about the nobleman who goes off to the far country to receive himself a kingdom. See, we don't think about that because we're not reading it against this context, and we just assume he's going to be successful, but that's not necessarily the case. He may come back king, but he may not. And so the question then, when the nobleman comes back at king, uh, or comes back as king, is which of his servants have been faithful and which have not? And so what the nobleman does is he gives uh, the, the minus to the ten servants as a test, really, of their loyalty. So this is a test. Now, a servant who would openly operate in the name of his master using the master's resources is demonstrating through his actions that he is identifying with and acting as though his master will return victorious. Engaging in business it then is not really about making money here. Instead, engaging in business is a sign of faith and loyalty. That's why it doesn't really matter. Like the... the, the, the um, the, the, the master doesn't care how much money they make. I mean, he's like, if you just put it in the bank and got interest, that's fine, right? Because he doesn't care about making more money. If you are publicly aligning yourself to your master in the marketplace, it might not go over so well if someone else other than your master comes back as king. You would almost certainly be labeled an enemy of the new regime. Therefore, if you are uncertain to your master's success, if you're like, I'm not sure this guy, you know, he's going to come back and get the kingdom, then your safest option is what? You keep your loyalties hitting, you don't say anything, and you bury the money. That's the smart move. And that's what the third servant opts for in this parable. And that's why the nobleman is so upset with him. And that's why it doesn't matter that uh, it's not about what the servants make. It never was about how much money they make or it, with what they were given. It was always about who would side with the nobleman in his absence. Engaging in trade in the nobleman's name and acting in the confidence that the nobleman would be giving the kingdom was a sign of loyalty. And that's why this parable is about faithfulness. It is showing us what a true faithful disciple looks like. A true faithful disciple is when your actions show you are loyal, even in the nobleman's absence, even when there is uncertainty, even when there is no evidence that your actions are going to work out in your favor. The third servant's explanation that he knew his master was a severe man is not justified. It's just a thinly veiled excuse the servant was afraid that he might end up backing the wrong horse and the nobleman saw right through it. Now let's put this reading. Okay. Now that we kind of understand the context, let's put this reading uh, to, to what's been going on here. So we have this blind beggar. He's called Jesus, the son of David. We have this Roman collaborator, Rome being the enemy uh, that's been converted. Jesus has announced salvation, which, like I said, that's a political term. That's not like this individual, like you're going to heaven kind of term. That's a political term, right? Salvation is the justice and score settling that a king brings when he starts to exercise his rule. And Jesus is going to Jerusalem right now, where he's going to ride into town on a donkey, just like Solomon did back in the day. So, and in fact, when we read Luke's account of the triumphal entry, 
The multitude cries, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. It actually uses the word king. Luke's gospel is the only account of the triumphal entry in which Jesus is specifically, uh, in, in which the word, um, the Greek word basileus is specifically used, or king, right? So Luke wants us to think about this in the terms of kingship. The disciples think that this king, this revolution is about to go down. And all the things that they want to happen, like the Romans being removed from Judea, was going to come any day now. And it was going to be awesome. That's what they were thinking. And Jesus had tried to warn them that that idea of revolution was not the same as his plan, but they're not getting it. Why? Because they already have that idea in their mind. It's like, this is so weird and foreign. This isn't like, I mean, that's why they can't understand it. They didn't grasp what he said. That's what, the, what, what Luke tells us. Now, Jesus' parable, then, is what the disciples need to understand about the events from the next, that is going to happen in the next couple of weeks. What's going to happen? There's going to be uncertainty. And the mark of the true disciple is going to be his faithfulness amid the uncertainty. The kind of faithfulness that is bold enough to go and do business in the nobleman's name, even when the nobleman is away and when it is unclear whether or not he is going to win. Now is the time to declare whose side you're really on. And because the stakes have never been higher. Yes, it's important that you manage the nobleman's resources, you know, appropriately and use your skills and wisdom to do so. But that is only a small part of what the story is trying to teach us here. Do your actions reflect your faith and belief that this kingdom will be won by the person who you believe is king? Is Jesus who he says he is? And are you going to act in a way that is consistent with that belief? Now, we can see a similar situation in our Old Testament reading for Jeremiah. See, I had to bring in the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament. It's so concrete. I think that's what makes the story great. So if you, if you were listening to the, this passage from 32, you can read it kind of like an analogy, right? At the time of this passage, okay, this passage from Jeremiah, Jerusalem is actually under siege by the Babylonians, right? The Babylonians have them all surrounded. There's like catapults or, you know, I don't know, you know, something like that. It's bad. Uh, and, and, you know, right now the Babylonians are like the biggest empire the world has seen up to this point. Their army is like the biggest in the world and their king Nebuchadnezzar is already like this legendary military leader. Now, we already know how that story ends. Jerusalem's going to fall and Nebuchadnezzar's army will burn everything to the ground, including the temple. Most of the elite will be taken, spoiler alert, uh, (laughs) most of the elite will be taken into captivity to Babylon and Jerusalem will be abandoned and lie in ruins for like the next, you know, 70 years. How bad do things get? Well, it just so happens that there's this book called Lamentations that tells you how bad it's going to get. But that's, we just covered that. Um, Now, during the siege, the king of Judah, whose name was Zedekiah, who's going to be the last king of Judah, had imprisoned Jeremiah the prophet because he kept telling everyone Jerusalem was going to fall, and apparently that's bad for morale. But after uh, he's in prison, uh, Jeremiah does something crazy. He buys a plot of land. 
Now, it's insane to buy a plot of land when the Babylonian army is camped in your country and your capital is under siege. But that's what Jeremiah does. He buys a plot of land that's three miles north of Jerusalem. And, he be- and, and guess what? He got a good deal on it, I bet. Now, the passage is interesting. And the, what I think is kind of cool about it is there's all these like really mundane legal details. You know, I was reading it. And you're like, oh my gosh, it's Sunday morning. It's like beautiful. And I'm like listening to you go on and on about like witnesses and like Baruch and like earthenware pots and like copies. Like this is like the most boring passage I've ever heard. I understand. Now, the only reason that you would bother doing any of all these like boring, you know, legal details. And that's why they're included in this passage. Like we need to know that it's boring and mundane. The only reason you would do this is because you believed so much the promise that this dire situation facing them would be reversed, right? That's the only reason you would go through all the trouble. You know, can you imagine like what the lawyers are doing? Like seriously, like you want me to make two copies and like under seal? There's like a siege going on. This lady, like, you're going to be dead. You know, the Babylonians are going to be like, you're not getting this land back. It's a total act of faith on Jeremiah's part in a time of uncertainty. It was a sign of hope against hope. And it was a sign that Jeremiah firmly believed that God had not abandoned his people in his land. And just like the first two servants in this parable, it marked Jeremiah as a true believer. And so, What all of this means should be coming clear to us. Jesus' message to his disciples, and Jesus' message to us, is that we need to live our lives in the belief that this world will be restored. That there is hope. That Sunday is coming. What Jesus wants to make clear to his followers is it's not going to necessarily look like that. We will see evil prevailing. And we will see all the wrong people ruling with impunity. I mean, let's think about right now in the world. It doesn't look like a lot of restoration is going on. And Jesus is is trying to tell us that. The way of the cross is not the easy way. It's marked by failure and suffering rather than triumph. However, it's also the very way that God has chosen to defeat the violence, darkness, and evil of this world because it's a victory that comes not through power and struggle and fighting, but through love and self-sacrifice because that's how God wants to win the battle. It is this way that Jesus has called us, his disciples, to invest in and be faithful to, to stand in his name and to conduct business in this world. To be a people who uphold values that are so counter to this world. Like things like loving other people. Things like being meek. Things like giving. And peace. And all those things that are values of Christ's kingdom. And when Christ comes, those are the values that will remain. Now, I've often shared with you before that one of my favorite poems is this poem by a guy named Wendell Berry. If you never read Wendell Berry, you like totally shut. Um, so he's got this great poem called Manifesto, the Mad Farmer's Liberation Front. I actually have a, a copy of it framed in my office. And the last line of the poem is practice resurrection. Yeah, one day when my wife lets me get a tattoo, that's what it's going to be. Um, most of the poem, 
get a look about that. Most of the poem is a call to reject the values of modernity and instead embrace the values of Christ's resurrected kingdom. And the point is of the poem is that by doing so, you're going to look mad. And there's one line in the poem in particular that I love because I think it it really illustrates the absurdity of it all. Here's the line: Invest in the millennium, plant sequoias, say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant and that you will not live to harvest. I love that line because here what we have we have another analogy for what it looks like to live out resurrection values in the world. It's like planting sequoias. It would be crazy to quit your job and become a sequoia farmer. Because if your life is only about 80 to 100 years, you're not going to make any money growing sequoias. If life is only about what you can use and profit from them, sequoias are a terrible business model. Yet, if you live in a bigger world, a world that's beyond you, that will continue, and that you participate in, and that will produce real long-lasting results, then it makes total sense to invest in something bigger and grander than yourself. And we have to recover. We have to recover this sense of purpose, this grander vision, and we need to be driven and inspired by it. We have to know and understand the values of Christ's kingdom. And that's going to require from us, it's going to require from us study, it's going to require from us work, and it's going to require from us imagination. And we have to put those values in practice. And that's going to require effort, and it's going to require a community. And all of this, all of this is going to happen in the midst of uncertainty, and in a world that looks very different from the world we are called to instill. It's going to look like engaging in business, when your master is away and it is uncertain if he will return. It's like buying a plot of land in a war zone, yet it's also called something else, a word that you all know, faith. Therefore, what are we called for? To practice resurrection.